stand now in honor of God's Word. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to begin in, I'm just going to read two verses, 31 and 32. Once again, this is Jesus preaching. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would uh, help us to receive this word this morning. Um, a lot of times we read things and study things that are contrary to what we have thought, and, and I know that that happens. Um, I pray that you would just help that to be um, as smooth as possible. I pray that you would give us ears to hear your word, give us minds to understand as we go through a lot of scripture today, and, and, and uh, give us hearts to receive this with gladness. And, uh, and I pray, the Father, that we would just leave with a better understanding of who you are and who your Son is as the groom. Uh, so we thank you for that. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So you guys can have a seat. I hope, that it would be my prayer, that all of us can look back on our lives at times when we have been studying God's Word or meditating on God's Word and, and reading, and it has made us change the way we think about a particular issue. If you've never been to that point, then either you don't spend much time studying God's Word or you were born already knowing everything that it says, in which case, let me know next week, you can be up here and I would, I would rather sit and take notes. For the most part, I think none of us are in that category, so... If you've ever been to that point, you know that we read and we study God's Word and a lot of us were raised in church and so, so a pastor or a preacher or a teacher would teach us something, our parents would teach us something, and we would just take it and say... That's what they told us. And, and for the most part, that's what we do. Um, and so when you come to times when you get on your own and you begin studying God's Word and learning on your own, you realize maybe you were taught wrong. And, and God's Word says one thing and somebody else told me different. And so you have an option to either hold on to what you were taught or conform to God's Word. And those times, those moments can be intense. Um, I can remember the very chair that I was sitting in, the position I was facing in our old house. Um, I can remember the dimness of the lights in the room. Um, I can remember the article that I was reading and the scripture that went along with it. When, I, when, when God opened my mind to understand His complete sovereignty over everything in the universe, including my own salvation. I can remember. And... and, and you can call it Reformed theology or, or the doctrines of grace. But up until that point, I had thought, that's silly. That There's no way. It made me angry to think that God was completely sovereign. And in a moment, God humbled my heart and I said, yeah, God, you, you really did save me. I didn't save myself. You saved me. But all that to say, 
there are moments when we look back and in those moments they're hard and maybe we fight against them and we don't want us to, I just don't want to believe that but his, his word says it and so I have to and we look back and those are oftentimes the, the, the most beautiful moments in our lives because we realize how patient God has been with us to get us to that point. That he's just held our hand like an infant and, and when we get it, he says, See, it's so much, it's so beautiful now that you get it. And he doesn't fuss at us and he doesn't gripe when we don't get it. He walks us and he's patient with us. And so um, today's topic brings up an, an issue like that. This idea is as old as Adam and Eve and it is, is as relevant and contemporary as the pizza that we're going to have for lunch. It is, it is the, the topic of marriage and divorce is... So prevalent in our culture that you can't read a magazine, watch the news, um, anything, pull up a browser on the internet without seeing something that pertains to marriage or relationships or dating or or all of those issues. Um, Because marriage and the union of a man and a woman is the most basic building block of our society. And so it's important and people are... Uh, going back and forth and, and most of the controversy surrounding marriage today is so-called same-sex marriage, which I said last week that, that doesn't exist. You can call it marriage if you want, but it's not marriage um, based on the Bible. But, but we're not going that route because this text is not talking about that. Um, we will get there eventually and it will be um, fun to learn and hear what God has to say about that. But there's just a lot of talk in our culture about relationships, marriage, divorce, Dating, living together. Um, the one pastor I heard even teaches that a couple who are dating should take a shower together before you get married so that you know what you're getting into before you get married. Absurdity is taught in churches because this is the idea. It's just a huge topic and of course it gets into the church and people want to just satisfy the ears of their listeners. Um, but all that to say, relationships are just a hot topic. And, and I, I think it's probably safe to assume that most of us here have our minds made up about what we believe about relationships and about dating or marriage and, and, and things like that. Um, my prayer for, for all of us today is that we would, once again, humble ourselves under the Word. Um, that you would pay attention and think clearly about this text because I'm going to be there's going to be a lot of scripture and a lot of teaching and so I want you to be able to think clearly Um, I want you to think clearly about the inspiration of scripture about divine authorship as well as human authorship and what goes into bringing us the the scripture that we have Um, if you're if if I, I teach today and in your mind you're defending a particular view, just ask yourself, why am I defending this? Is it because it makes me feel comfortable or is, am I defending what God's Word says? My, most of all, my prayer is that we would leave with a clearer picture and a better perspective of the relationship that we have with Christ if you're a believer. If you're not a believer, my prayer is that you would be saved, that God would save you today. He would open your eyes to see Christ for the bridegroom that He is and and what He's done for His church. Secondly, uh, by way of just introduction, I want to preface everything that I say with this. If you've ever been divorced, 
initiated a divorce, remarried after a divorce, under any circumstance, those actions, as most of you already know, they have particular consequences, but they're not ultimately damning. They have momentary repercussions, but they are not necessarily, they don't have to be the beginning of lifelong sin that leads to hell. There are some people who will teach that if you've ever been divorced and then remarried, that every time you're intimate with your spouse, you're committing adultery and you're living in sin and you will go to hell when you die. The Bible does not teach that. And that's false. There is always forgiveness. There's always grace. There's always mercy. There's always redemption and there's always reconciliation. And all of those things were purchased by the blood of Jesus on the cross. They are. And if you repent and you seek forgiveness, they're forgiven. They're taken away. It's gone. They're, that, they're sins that are no different than any other sin in God's eyes with, with that regard. So there's, there's always hope in Christ. Always. You should not carry that burden of sin. If you're a believer, you don't carry that burden. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so you don't carry that and, 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 and don't think that as I'm teaching I'm condemning because that's not the goal. The goal is as always that we would worship our King when we leave. And we would, we would be so enthralled with His beauty... That we worship. And so, all that being said, it's just introduction. So let's look at this text and, and unpack this. And like I said, we're going to have to think and pay attention. Because there's a lot that goes into this. Verse 31 of Matthew chapter 5 says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So we have here the particular law... In question that has been handed down to Jesus' hearers as, as he's preaching to them. He, he's used once again the same form, the same structure that he used in the last two antitheses is what we're going to call them. And last week I said that these are like pillars that Jesus is building to uphold this platform and uphold this statement about uh, fulfillment of the law. And the righteous requirement that God requires of kingdom citizens, of believers. So he's doing the same thing here that we watched him do for the last two weeks. He's doing the same thing that we'll watch him do for the next three weeks. Nothing's changed. In a few of these, like verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old. In verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old. In some of those, Matthew records that to those of old. And in some of them, he doesn't. He doesn't say that. Um, it is the idea, idea generally held by interpreters and scholars is that that statement is, meant, is assumed in all of these. Because Jesus is taking the law that they had been taught and driving it deeper. So we can assume that. So he's taking what had been, had been taught to these people. What had, had come down through the generations and, and been held as the law. And he's giving his own interpretation. His own contrasting interpretation. Which takes the law much deeper than it had currently been held. As we have studied. We've seen that. He gives what they thought. And then he contrasts it. So this particular law. He's quoted from Deuteronomy 24. I'm going to read where he quotes this from. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Verses 1 through 4. He actually quotes from verse 1, but I'm going to read through verse 4 to give that context. 
It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now when we read that, some of you already see the, the difference. And, and, and when we, we see that what Jesus is teaching in Matthew, what He's quoted, is, is, is there's some confusion. The law in Deuteronomy, what's it about? It's not about marriage. It's not about divorce. It's about remarriage after the, the second marriage. This woman has been married and then a man divorced her and then she got married again and that man divorced her or he died and this law says the, the man, the first husband, can't marry her again which would be her third marriage, his second marriage. That's an abomination. That's what the law is saying. The law is about divorce and remarriage. So you can see that what Jesus is saying is not a direct quote from the law. They had taken just a between two commas of an existing law and, and made it a law by itself. During the time of Moses, men were divorced, would divorce women left and right. They just leave them, go find another one. Leave them, go find another one. Any reason under the sun, leave them, go find another one. Leave them, go find another one. It was rampant. Women couldn't divorce men. Women had no legal rights during this time, and so the men would just leave them. I mean, there was just like shoes. You use one until you get tired of them and you get, get another wife. And so what Moses did is he put restrictions on the divorce and remarriage. And so now you couldn't just walk away. You have to go and get a, a certificate of divorce. So basically it just makes a little bit of a hassle out of it. You know, it's like we have to go to the DMV and get paperwork or go to the courthouse for anything. It, just, it makes it just not so easy. And so rather than just saying, I'm done, I'm leaving... They had to go get a certificate of divorce, fill it out, give it to the woman. And maybe during that time, they would think about what they're doing. It would just slow them down. It was just, a, it was just given to, um, to just calm that things down and put restrictions on it. So the religious teachers of Jesus' day had taken this law about divorce and remarriage and made it simply about divorce. In Matthew 19, Jesus is asked the same question. I'll read this. Matthew 19. Beginning in verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore... A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. One question, one answer. Here comes a second question. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? So verse 3, they ask a question, and Jesus 
And the question is for any cause. And Jesus answers the question. Let not men separate what God has joined together. No. Then they ask another question. Why then did Moses command a man to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? So they took what Moses gave as a concession and made it into a law. Because look at verse 8 of Matthew 19. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. So Moses allowed, and they said, why did Moses command? So they're, they're mixing things up. They're twisting what Moses had said. So you've got this allowed, a concession, versus a command. And this is the rule that Jesus is refuting. They were under the impression that Moses commanded a man who had a wife who was guilty of any indecency, you have to divorce her. Why did Moses say that? And Jesus said, no, Moses just allowed for it. He didn't command that. So, so this is what they were teaching. At this time, they were teaching this. And this is what Jesus is going to challenge. Key word, challenge. He's done nothing but challenge their thoughts up until this point in the Sermon on the Mount. He gives a law, he challenges it. Gives a law, challenges it. He does nothing after this, but gives a law, challenges it. Gives a law, challenges it. So this is the law, and he's going to challenge it. There's no reason for us to think Jesus is going to do anything different than what he's been doing and what he continues to do. Okay, let's break there. In Jesus' day, there were two different schools of thought as, as pertains to the Pharisees and their teaching. If you were a Pharisee, you trained under one of two men or two schools of thought. Um, just like we have conservatives and liberals, they had a more conservative school and a more liberal school. The more liberal school was the school of Hillel. Now this man and, and his group interpreted the law much more leniently than the other school. In rules of divorce, the ruling would have always been seeking to go in favor of the man. Women had no legal rights. So you're, you're just trying to make this man happy. And so when it came to a man who wanted to divorce his wife, the Hillel school said, you can divorce your wife under any circumstance. Literally. Maybe she cooked a meal wrong. Divorce. Literally, that, that was written. Maybe she uh, looked at another man in the wrong way. Divorce. Maybe she committed some sort of sexual immorality. Divorce. Maybe she committed full-blown adultery. Divorce, And of course, she would be stoned to death. So for the Hillel school of thought, the man was given every cause necessary to divorce his wife. Because they were liberal, they wanted to please the man and, 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 and give that, that leniency to the man. Their idea was to cater to the men. The more conservative school was the school of Shammai. Now, Shammai was more conservative. He was a little stricter in his interpretations. Um, he, he gave very little wiggle room when it came to interpreting God's law and, and the commandments and its implications. Now, this school taught that the only reason a man can divorce his wife is for sexual immorality, fornication. If a woman was found to be guilty of fornication or sexual immorality, then a man could give her a certificate of divorce. So those are the two schools of thought. Pharisees would have learned under these one of these two. The more liberal said, cooks a meal wrong, you can divorce her. The more conservative said, if she's committed sexual immorality, you can divorce her. Now look at what Jesus says in verse 32 of Matthew 5. 
It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So if we take into account the two schools of thought that we just learned about, what we have Jesus saying, in essence, is, you have heard that it was said, but I say the same thing. He just quoted back to them what the school of Shammai already taught. There, there's, there's nothing nothing different here. They already believe this. Now, if you remember the context of the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is doing is supporting the statement, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then we read in verse 32, if we read it that way, it makes no sense. You must be better than the Pharisees. The Pharisees teach this, but I say the same thing. Do what the Pharisees do. It doesn't make any sense. There's no reason for him to say this. I'm going to just add this. You've heard that it was said, but I said the same thing. That doesn't make any sense in the context of the sermon. There's no reason to teach this. This is what they already believed. You can divorce a woman on the grounds of sexual immorality. It doesn't work in the context of the Sermon on the Mount at all. So what do we do with this? I'm glad you asked. I'm going to argue and I'm going to teach from what is called the permanence view of marriage. And this is where I challenge your minds and your hearts. I'm going to argue that this exception clause, except on the ground of sexual immorality, was added by Matthew for his intended audience, but that it in no way advocates divorce under any circumstance for us today. Now I know what you're saying. Wait a minute. The Bible says it somewhere else. Somewhere else it says on the ground of sexual immorality. You're exactly right. It says it once again in Matthew's gospel. And we didn't get that far in 19, but we will. Matthew is the only one who records this exception clause. Nowhere else in Scripture is it ever mentioned. Just in Matthew. And I'll read it. Matthew 19, verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So there you have it. Only Matthew records this exception clause. Now let's look at the other passages in Scripture that, that mention this topic and see what they say. Mark chapter 10, verse 10. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. No exception clause. It's just, plain, it's just black and white. You do this, it's this. Um, Luke chapter 16, verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. No exception clause. You do this, it's this. You do this, it's this. Romans 7, um, verses 1 through 3. Or do you not know, brothers... For I am speaking to those who know the law. That the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. If she marries another man, she is not adulteress. Once again, the only thing that breaks a marriage is death. Makes you wonder... Now you know, till death do us part. Only death can break this bond. 
And then one more time in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So there you go. There's no no exception clause given. You just, if you are divorced, get, get back together. There's no exception clause. So you see in all those passages, it's just, it's just not there. As a matter of fact, all of those passages seem, for the most part, black and white. You don't get divorced, you don't get remarried. There's no exceptions. As long as the other spouse is living. Only death can break this bond. Matthew is the only one who includes this exception clause. Now the question we have to ask is why? Why did Matthew say this? Nobody else says it. Does the Bible contradict itself? Your answer, of course, is of course not. That doesn't happen. The Bible can't contradict itself. And so we've got to figure out why did Matthew say this? Well, remember, Matthew is a Jew writing to Jewish people. He was the only one as a matter of fact, who, who it seems that as though he it was writing specifically to and strictly to a Jewish audience. So keep that in mind. Matthew's writing his for Jewish people to read. If we're going to rightly understand this relationship of marriage, then we have to understand how we have to know how God would have us understand marriage. What makes a marriage complete to God? What does he consider a marriage? What does he consider that a legitimate union? Well, first of all, there's the legal act of the covenant. We, we, we go into a covenant. This is the legally binding agreement between a man and a woman that they will be faithful to one another forever. They make a covenant to one another and to God that they're going to be together for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others until death separates them. This is a part of the marriage covenant before God. We have marriage certificates that we sign and the the state recognizes that legal binding agreement. That's half of a marriage. There's also the physical union of a man and a woman before God. Back at Matthew chapter 19, Jesus says, if you remember, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, male and female, and said... Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So first of all, Jesus gives a direct rejection of divorce. Can a man divorce his wife for any reason? No. What God has joined together, let not man separate. And he says it's on the ground that, quote, the two have become one flesh. You cannot separate one flesh. You can't, it doesn't work. They're one flesh. The one flesh union cannot be broken. Let no man separate. God joined together, let not man separate. It can't be broken. So what constitutes becoming one flesh? Well, that's the physical act of consummating a marriage, sexual intercourse. In 1 Corinthians 6.16, Paul teaches on this and he says, Do you not know, brothers, that a man who joins himself to a prostitute becomes one flesh with her? Because, and he quotes, as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. I think we all know what happens when you go to a prostitute. That sexual relationship, sexual intercourse, constitutes becoming one flesh. And Jesus says, this union cannot be broken. 
That's why you don't go to prostitutes. That's why you don't sleep around before you get married. Because you can't break that bond. You might move on to another one, but there's always something there. And this is the relationship that cannot be broken. The one flesh union. So there's the legal covenant, and then there's the physical union between a man and a woman that constitutes a legitimate marriage to God. And Jesus said that the one flesh union cannot be broken. Second thing we have to understand is Jewish marriage versus American marriage. And for the most part, marriage around the world. The second thing we have to remember is that interpretation of Scripture lies in the original author's intent. Whatever Matthew's trying to say here is what it means. We don't come and say, oh God, just give me a special, you know, reveal this to me, help me to understand. No, we just read it, use our mind to say, what was Matthew trying to say? That's what it means. It's not superstitious. It's not a crystal ball that we rub and close. It's just, it's just scripture. He's writing a gospel narrative. And so whatever Matthew's trying to say is what the passage says. In Jesus' day, Jews had a different way of performing the act of marriage than we do. If you'll remember last week, I mentioned marriage and betrothal. And I said they're very similar, but not the same. Well, this is where that comes into play. Betrothal in Jesus' day for Jewish people wasn't like what we call engagement. We think that being betrothed means getting engaged. It's, they're not the same thing. In our terms, engagement is just a word of mouth agreement. You know, when you marry me, yes, we're engaged. There's, no, there's nothing legal binding at all. It's just these two parties said, hey, we're going to get married. So you can get engaged and you can get married a week later like I did. Or you can get engaged and get married 10 years later. And if at any time during those 7 days or those 10 years you decide you want out, you can walk away. There's no legal percussions. There's nothing. You just walk away and it's done. You might be out of a ring if she holds on to that. But other than that, there's nothing holding you there. It's just an engagement. It's just word of mouth. But that's not the way that they did it in the first century. If you were a Jewish person during this time period and you were betrothed, that was the legally binding agreement. The legal covenant recognized by the government that we talked about when we signed the certificate, that was betrothal in this day. And so when two people were betrothed, usually you would begin to start making arrangements, start planning the wedding. The father would set a wedding dowry price for his daughter. The groom would pay that dowry to the father. And they were betrothed, legally bound. They were called husband and wife. But they, had, they did not live together. And they had not consummated the marriage. If you wanted to be out of a betrothal, you had to give a certificate of divorce. Because that was the legally binding agreement. And then sometime later, whenever you set the date, you would have the wedding feast, which was usually at least a week long, just this massive party. And after that, the ceremony, you would consummate the marriage. Sexually, you would become the one flesh union that God has joined together that can't be separated. That would be finalizing the marriage before God. They had already been contractually, covenantally, legally bound together as husband and wife. And now, they become one flesh. 
For us, we get engaged, get out whenever we want to. If we want to, hey, I'm done. I just don't think it's a good idea. It has no legally binding effect. And then we get married. We have a ceremony and the contractual agreement, the certificate is usually signed at the ceremony. The pastor will go back in his office and sign and come to the or whatever after the ceremony. Or he'll give it to them when they get back from the honeymoon, whatever. That's the ceremony. And then usually the relationship is consummated sexually on that same day. Usually. That's the way it works. We do all of this requirements for a God-ordained legitimate marriage before God are happening in one day. Sign the papers. And consummate the marriage, you're married. But they broke it up over a long period of time sometimes. Now back to Matthew 5.32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife on, except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now the key to unlocking why Matthew said this and why he's the only one that says this is the two words, sexual immorality. Remember, adultery is between two people who are married. They're covenantally bound. Fully married. Sexual immorality is different. Fornication is different. The word he uses here for sexual immorality is the word pornea. The word for adultery is moikia. If he meant adultery, he could have said adultery, but he didn't say adultery. He said sexual immorality. He does not use the word for adultery. The term pornea... Fornication, sexual immorality is directly related to the betrothal laws. Jewish betrothal, not full-fledged wedded bliss. So fornication might be found out during the the betrothal period and divorce papers could be served and, and the marriage was not the one flesh union that cannot be broken yet. So say they're getting ready to beat their betrothed, they're legally bound, and then they find out they're first cousins. Ah, crap. Guess we'll have to get divorced. They weren't full-fledged. They weren't the one flesh union yet before God. So they could get out. They were not fully married in God's eyes. The one flesh union is what can't be broken. Not the legal agreement. The one flesh union. So the only way that this exception clause... Would, have, would apply to us today in our time period is if you got two people who can get married to have their ceremony and they're getting ready to pull out the parking lot, cans are dangling on the car, there's bird seed everywhere and they get ready to hit the road and ah! he puts it in park and he jumps out and he says, she's been with another man, I don't want anything to do with her before they consummate the marriage. And in our time period, more than likely the pastor hasn't even signed any paperwork yet. It's not, the paperwork hasn't been turned into the courthouse. So that nothing's happened except for a party. Which we know you can have a party anytime. You can get two people together and say whatever you want to anytime, anywhere, and it doesn't mean it's a marriage. So if you take Matthew here with the exception clause, and in Matthew 19 with the exception clause, and you and you understand it as referring to the betrothal, then it goes right along with what everybody else says in Scripture. There's no contradiction. And you have to agree that the Bible in no way ever advocates for divorce under any circumstance. Zero. You want a divorce? Too bad, not an option. Never. Now, I know that there are those here who have been divorced and remarried. I know that most of us probably all know Bible-believing, Christ-exalting Christians who have been married and divorced. As a matter of fact, there are very smart 
Bible teachers who would disagree with what I just said. John MacArthur has his own study Bible with his name on it, and he would disagree with what I said. Um, a book I've been reading by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones does not agree with this. So, so this is a hard to understand thing, but there are um, people who agree with what I'm teaching. Dr. Vody uh, Bauckham, Dr. John Piper, they teach this permanence view of marriage. So there's, it, it's kind of, it's one of those things that you really have to dig into to, to come to this understanding and, and agree with this. And, and what I would say is, what we have to ask ourselves is, why would I ever disagree with that? Why would I argue with the permanence view of marriage? Do I hold my particular view because it seems like logical conclusion in our society? Or do I hold my perspective because it's what the Bible teaches? This, this, when I say this, when I say no circumstances, you immediately think, well, what about this? Or what about that? Well, surely she's not supposed to stay with me if he's doing this. Well, surely not. No. There are many questions, and I, there's no way I can answer them all here. And that's why in the small groups this week, there's one question. Do you have any questions? And I will do my best to use Scripture and answer every one of them. Will I be able to answer all of them? Probably not. Will I be able to satisfy everybody's understanding of this? Probably not. That's why I prefaced all of this. By saying, if you've ever been divorced, initiated a divorce, or remarried after a divorce under any circumstances, those actions do have particular consequences, but they're not ultimately damning. You're not going to go to hell because you had a divorce. That doesn't mean that just from here on out, well, I'm living in sin, I'm going to hell. That's not what that means. There's always forgiveness, always grace, always mercy, always redemption, always reconciliation. And Jesus bought that with His blood. And so it's real. It's always there. There's always hope in Christ. Always. So if you've been through a divorce and you're single, my encouragement is the same as the Apostle Paul. Get back together with your spouse. Do what you've got to do to fix it. If you've ever been, if you're, if you're remarried and you're in a relationship now, my encouragement is exalt that marriage. Lift it up to where God intended for it to be. Stay there. Fight for it. Work with it. Jesus bought it. You're there. You can't go back and make a wrong right. You just have to say, hey, we're there. God, forgive me. I sinned. But I'm lifting this up and I'm going to do everything I can to make this stick because it can't be broken. So that's... That's my encouragement. And, and we have to understand God's design for marriage. That's the whole point. If you have a hard time understanding this, it's more than likely because we have a misunderstanding of why God designed marriage and what it is. Marriage is God's creation, God's design. He sets the rules. He sets the boundaries. We don't get to come to it and say, well, yeah, but I think this. No, no we, don't get, we don't get that. We have to go by His rules. And so the question is, what is God's design? What are the reasons God gives for marriage? And how does divorce attempt to come against those things? And I would argue that marriage exists for three reasons. Procreation, sanctification, and illustration. Notice I did not say satisfaction. I did not say happiness. I did not say pleasure. I did not say comfort. I didn't say finances. I didn't say life help. Procreation, sanctification, illustration. Making babies, becoming more like Jesus, and showing the world a picture of the gospel love that Jesus has for His bride. 
So marriage exists for procreation. We see from the very beginning with Adam and Eve, God says be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We learn from Scripture that children are a blessing, not a curse. Our culture says children are a curse. Avoid children. Stay away from children. You save having children until you're in your at least early 30s or 40s because you want to get all the stuff out of the way that you want to do. Then resort to procreation because once you have children, your life's just miserable. God says, no, children are a blessing. God says, like arrows in the quiver of a mighty warrior are the children of a man's youth. You get, you get familiar with them and, you, and they make you... Fulfill what you do, what you were created for. You you work on them and you sharpen them and you make them straight and then you shoot them off to accomplish what God has intended. Children are a blessing. And so we we understand that, that God wants us to procreate. He wants us to have children. In Malachi, I just flip right over and read this. In Malachi chapter 2, this idea comes up. And we read, there's this spiritual comparison between, between marriage and Offspring, And I say spiritual because it does have spiritual context for the children of Israel or the tribe of Judah and their spiritual lives. But it also has, is very true about the individual sins of God's people. I'll begin reading in verse uh, 13 um, in Malachi chapter 2. It says, And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you, you who say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she was your companion and your wife by covenant. But he did not make them one with a did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in the Spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. Some translations say right there, God hates divorce, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in the spirit and do not be faithless. So there's this spiritual implication that Judah had wandered off after false gods and committed this spiritual adultery. But they had also, as individuals, married into false, uh, false religions and, and those foreign nations that God had told them not to do. And you see in verse 15, what was God seeking? Godly offspring. See, the problem with breaking a marriage covenant and divorce is that it brings harm to that process of raising godly offspring. Does that mean that godly children can't be raised in broken homes? Absolutely not. I would never say that because I know some of the godliest people I know have never met their father. So that's not what the, that's not the point. The point is, and I don't think any of us would argue, that God intends for two godly parents to make a covenant, to stick together, to work on that marriage and build it and teach their kids to do the same. Breaking that covenant bond of marriage comes against that process to harm the process of bringing up spiritual offspring as does any sin. Any sin in the home. Harms that godly offspring. And so we, you just don't want it. It, it, it. it seeks to harm that. Marriage exists for sanctification. I read from 1 Corinthians 7 already. I'll read from there again. 1 Corinthians 7, um, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. 
I didn't hear any amens. Okay. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, here it is, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. See, Paul says one of the reasons we get married is to fulfill the sexual desires that we have. Most of us are born with sexual desires. And when we get to a certain age, they get stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. And as they get stronger, we know that it seems like there's opportunities around every corner to fulfill those sexual temptations in a sinful manner. Rather than just overcoming the temptation. Paul says, get married. Think about it. Get married. Do sex whenever you want. Anytime, anywhere, anyhow, you can do it all you want. And that that satisfies that desire. He says the reason is so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. We learned last week that part of the sanctification process is ridding your life of temptation. And nothing does that better for sexual temptation than just getting married and having sex anytime, anywhere you want. That's why you do that. You're getting rid of that temptation. So when divorce comes into the picture, that sanctification is threatened. All of a sudden you're single and you're, you're on the prowl again. And Satan's coming at you from every corner and there are these desires waiting around every corner. You've, you've, instead of ridding the temptation, you've just welcomed it back into your life. You're going backwards in the process. You don't want to do that. So stay in that marriage. Fight for that marriage to resist the temptations and, and get rid of those Desires, or not get rid of those desires, but fulfill them whenever they come and go. Lastly, and I think probably the most important reason that we have marriages is God has designed a marriage for illustration. And we've talked about this many times. We learn from Scripture that from God's perspective, Jesus Christ was the slain lamb, crucified. For his people from the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, 8, 14, 8. That means that before there was ever an earth. Before there was ever an Adam and Eve. In God's timeline. There was a bridegroom. Laying down his wife. Or his life for his wife. The bride. The church. So when Adam and Eve come along, God creates this one flesh union between the two of them as an illustration of the love that Christ has had for His church from the foundation of the world. It's not the other way around. God didn't hook up Adam and Eve and then come to him and say, Hey, man, y'all are doing so good. As a matter of fact, all you human beings are so so good at being faithful and and honoring your marriages and never looking at another person, never coveting another another, uh, male or female or never having any sexual... You guys are so good. I'm just going to design salvation after you guys. He didn't say that because we're terrible at it. He, he, He comes along and he designs marriage... To model the gospel. Ephesians 5 says, Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her. Marriage was invented so that we can all see a flesh and blood picture of the gospel. And we can look at it and say, that's what the gospel is about? 
That's how Jesus loves me? Oh, this blows my mind that Jesus would love me like that. This is it? That's why when we get to heaven, it says there will be no marrying or giving, giving in marriage because we'll be there. We will be with Jesus. We won't have to see any more pictures. When divorce comes into the picture, it destroys that illustration. Divorce says to the world, Christ doesn't love His church enough to look past her sins. Christ isn't patient enough to walk along a struggling bride. That's not Jesus. Christ isn't committed enough to love His bride in spite of her faults. Christ isn't in this for the long haul. He's just in it for as long as it benefits Him and then He's out. Christ can't endure the pain and and suffering long enough to see any joy set before Him. He wouldn't do that. Christ never had a bigger picture in mind than what seems like the most logical conclusion at the time. That's what divorce says. So here's the question. When you read Scripture and you see the love that Christ has shown His bride and the extent to which Christ has gone to redeem His bride and cleanse her and make her spotless and presentable, does it seem to you that that relationship is best modeled by marriage with or without an exception clause? Take Hosea's life, for example, which was orchestrated and commanded to be lived out to show us God's love for His people. Hosea married a wife who was already a prostitute. God said, take unto you a wife of whoredom. Go find a prostitute and marry her. He knew before he was going into it, she was unfaithful. And when she continued her lifestyle, did he divorce her? No. Because that's not the kind of love God has for His people. God's love is a covenant love. As a matter of fact, Hosea went and paid the highest price and bought the prostitute Gomer out of prostitution and said, you're going to be my bride. You're not going to live this way anymore. That's God's love for His people. In Matthew 26, at the institution of the Lord's Supper, Jesus holds up a cup and He says, this is my blood of the covenant. Hosea, I mean Jesus, poured out His own blood to seal this covenant. Hosea paid a high price. Jesus gave His life to seal the covenant between Himself and the church. So the question is, what gospel do you rest in? The gospel that says Christ has a relationship with His bride, but as soon as any of us sin, He can toss us aside? Or the gospel that says Christ died for His bride? The gospel that says he will lose none of what the Father has given him. That's what he said. In evangelism, when you're sharing the gospel with friends and family and co-workers, do you share a gospel that says, receive Jesus, believe in Jesus, trust in Jesus. He's died for your sins, paid the price, but whatever you do, don't ever sin again because he'll leave you at the drop of a hat. Is that the gospel we share? No. If marriage is an illustration of the gospel and the love that Christ has for His bride, then we must conclude that marriage is meant to be permanent no matter what. Marriage is a one flesh union between a man and a woman and that cannot be broken. God has joined them together and it cannot be separated. It is also a covenant, a legally binding covenant between a man and a woman and God. If you've made a covenant to God, you better keep your covenant. God's not willing that you break a promise to Him. You don't break promises to God. 
So the Bible, the whole story of the Bible, teaches that God, before the foundation of the world, chose out a people from the earth to be His people. They are the called out ones. Literally, the elect. The church, the bride of Christ. And even though that bride was born into spiritual adultery and idolatry, even though we are zealous for wickedness and sin, even though we would quickly, at the drop of a hat, run after another lover, another false god, that God in Christ paid the ransom for that bride. He died on the cross, not only satisfied the wrath of God against sin and sinners, but He paid the price with His own blood to reconcile the bride back to Himself. He gave us the written Word. The Bible said that we could be washed with the water of the Word, it says. Sanctified and prepared, cleaned up and washed up of our filth so that someday we we can be presented back to Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we will have that marriage feast and we will be spotless and blameless before Him. He, He bought all of that. And the Bible says if you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are added to that number. You are in. You are saved into the church. There's no such thing as as an individual Christian. You are saved into the church. You're saved into the bride. You are bought into that group. You're bought out of spiritual adultery, out of spiritual prostitution. So think about... The way that you live your life on a daily basis as it pertains to religion and how we honor God and our our piety and our worship of God. And ask yourself, do I want to be a part of an exception clause gospel? Because that means Jesus can leave me anytime he sees fit. Or do I want to be a part of a covenant-keeping, blood-bought, eternal gospel that cannot be broken? Matthew put this in here for his readers. And unless you have a marriage like the Jews did, it doesn't apply. We understand it. We welcome it. It's God's Word. But we don't get married that way anymore. So in closing, like I said, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's always forgiveness. If you're remarried, exalt it and fight for it. God bought that marriage. He designed that marriage. You may have started off wrong, but... You can work towards keeping that. So let's pray. Father.